Hey, let's talk about 1980s fantasy. Thor Ragnarok is the greatest Marvel film ever made. I figured I'd start things off with a hot take. But no lie, as the third interpretation of the Thor character from the Marvel comics, Ragnarok was a dizzying mix of high fantasy, science fiction, pulp comic book action, and blended with spectacular set pieces, strong performances, the best version of Loki Marvel has ever seen, and a shocking amount of unique social and historical commentary. Taika Waititi... If I mispronounce that, I apologize. Evolved the Thor MCU storyline with excellent concepts and daring ideas that makes us wish he had joined Marvel sooner. It is such a spectacular 1980s-esque high fantasy movie that the only possible way it could have been bogged down was as every was if everything that happened in the movie would be undermined by any sort of sequel. Well... The teaser after the credits would confirm my fears immediately, and five months later we got Infinity War, and the very opening 15 minutes had disrupted the momentum and importance of Thor Ragnarok to a complete halt. So even though they were given essentially free range on how to tell Thor's story moving forward, which is usually supposed to be more fantasy than science fiction and of the more grounded comic book genres... It was all undercut when Thanos showed up and the Disney Marvel machine kept churning out films with minimal time between. Today, as of this recording, Thor Ragnarok is buried underneath the timeline-shattering events that occurred within Infinity War and Endgame, with 11 Marvel movies happening between Ragnarok and the next chapter of the series, with the only narrative movement of the citizens of Asgard is their boring and overlooked relocation in Norway. Thor Ragnarok is an excellent fantasy, but one that would never otherwise exist in the first place if not for Disney's insistence of attaching it to its other Marvel properties. Ragnarok's only setbacks, if we're being honest, is how it was forced to connect to other movies like Doctor Strange and Infinity War. And this, my friends, is part of why I'm about to argue that Marvel is why we no longer have the plethora of creative and groundbreaking fantasy films that we've witnessed and enjoyed back in the 1980s. Yes, I know, filmmaking's easiest punching bag, Marvel. There will be other theories to explore, which ranges from fantasy now belonging to the medium of video games, and then maybe it could be because of the big fish, little fish structure that we're seeing in Hollywood today. However... Despite that, at the end of the day, I'm blaming Marvel, even if I remain a fan of the MCU. And yes, one can do both. Welcome to Coffee and a Script. discuss the rise and fall of fantasy movies i'm letting you know that i'm already changing the format of my podcast a little on the pilot podcast that term even exists i had said that i would spend some time discussing some pieces of news before getting to the main topic but i think i'm better off actually cutting that sequence entirely and just dive bombing into the main topic altogether i had this idea that between my primary episodes 
I'd have separate smaller recordings that would be about the news I want to cover and the politics I want to discuss. I think that prevents these larger episodes, the scripted ones, from being too bloated, disjointed, and has obvious evidence that some of it's written and some of it's ad-libbed. We'll see if it works. I might change my mind for a few weeks from now. But here's a word from our sponsor. Wait, where's the sponsor? A successful comic book writer suffering from loneliness finally meets the man of her dreams. Except she meets him only in her dreams. One night after a lengthy drawing session, Veronica falls asleep and finds herself in an alternate version of the world she lives in, where she finds Chi Pan Tang, a handsome architect. Every time she falls asleep, she finds herself living life with this new man in her dreams, giving her the motivation and energy she needs whenever she wakes up. But Chi Pan Tang has ended up in her nightmares, and now Veronica must face all of her worst fears in order to rescue him from her internalized darkness. The Other Side, an anime-inspired genre bender written by Milton Mousepin, is currently on sale for any movie studio to purchase at the low, low price of a million dollars. Yeah, you know, anybody. Please, buy this script. I got bills to pay. Alright, onward to the subject of fantasy. Ignore the air conditioning, in case you hear it, because it's super hot right now. Uh, in case you didn't know, <laughs> all of this gets recorded inside a car. Oh, hello, random vehicle. This episode was actually a challenge issued to me by my best friend, whom I asked what topic I should cover. And he brought up how in the 1980s there was a slew of excellent fantasy films, and for whatever reason, we just don't see that much of the adventurous Dungeons and Dragons representation in the world of cinema. We do indeed see it on television sometimes, and especially in the gaming industry, but there's a lack of brand new worlds to discover when going to the theater itself. I decided to accept this challenge and went back to the 1980s to see the fantasy output. Listing these in no particular order, during the 1980s we have The NeverEnding Story, Excalibur, The Princess Bride, Lady Hawk, Conan the Barbarian, the version of the Black Calderon that Disney will never, ever let you see, Time Bandits, Willow, Labyrinth, Return to Oz, The Dark Crystal, Legend, The Beastmaster, and then we could even throw in films set in modern times with heavy fantasy elements like Big Trouble in Little China, The Goonies, The Indiana Jones Trilogy, Field of Dreams, Beetlejuice, and my personal favorite, The Natural. Then, let's not forget the animated fantasies from Miyazaki and Don Bluth during this time period. Quite the legendary output. The 1970s and even the following decade of the 90s didn't have such a strong lineup of fantasy. The 2000s would give us very successful adaptations like the Harry Potter franchise, the Lord of the Rings trilogy, and to a lesser extent, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. If we forget, the, the sequels happened. Please. Please. Let's forget the sequels happened. But what it has in box office success based off successful novels, it lacks the variety of worlds that had been created cinematically during the 1980s. Today, we just don't see that much fantasy in film anymore. It's been delegated mostly to other mediums. And we don't really have much on the horizon related to your epic fantasies, except maybe the Avatar sequel, which is more sci-fi, and there's The Northman, which was bogged by bad marketing and bad timing.
The big studios today tends to stay far, far away from this, dabbling into fantasy only once in a while, whether it be the strange Harry Potter spinoffs or two movies based off of Maleficent? I forgot Disney did that. So what happened? Why is it that even though movies are bigger than ever, budgets are higher than ever, and technology has advanced to levels that would have been impossible 10-15 years ago, are we seeing a lack of pure fantasy on screen? For fun, let's go explore some theories. The first potential explanation is that during the 1980s, you had a slew of creative minds at their absolute peak while also having enough power against the larger studios in Hollywood to mostly be allowed to complete their visions as intended. All those movies I mentioned earlier, let me read out the names of people involved in producing and or directing them. George Lucas, Richard Donner, Rob Reiner, Steven Spielberg, Ron Howard, Ridley Scott, Frank Oz, Jim Henson, Wolfgang Peterson, Terry Gillum, Don Bluth, Hayao Miyazaki, Jeffrey Kratzenberg, among others. And I am totally kidding about that last one. I'm just making sure you're paying attention. Some of those names experienced their best output during that decade and never truly found their stride afterwards. George Lucas was at the peak of his powers during the 1980s with the original trilogy involvement and all his ideas being scattered to other great films. Don Bluth challenged the mighty Disney directly throughout the 1980s, and it wasn't until The Little Mermaid when Disney found their winning formula and became the animation kings for over a decade straight. Don Bluth after the 1980s? Outside of Anastasia, it's yikes upon yikes. Of course, there was Jim Henson, who sadly passed away far too soon while he had just been discovering his skills beyond providing entertainment for children and families. His longtime collaborator, Frank Oz, would have a career after Henson's death, but he really wasn't the same without his creative partner, nor did he really attempt more forays into the realm of fantasy. The 1980s was just a great plethora of storytellers homing their skills simultaneously, providing us a slew of magnificent worlds to see and explore. And this type of creative spark in the world of fantasy was just never been repeated again. The second explanation is a little more left field, but I think carries some weight. All these high concept fantasies stopped happening in film because they found another medium where they can excel even better while still being able to tell its full story and explore all its themes and ideas without restrictions. Video games. As fantasy fell starting in the 1990s, we were seeing Japanese RPGs rise up and take over gaming. Starting in Japan, of course. We had Dragon Quest sell millions of copies and unleash an entire movement of role-playing games. As the console wars peaked, the United States would soon fall in love with Final Fantasy, Breath of Fire, Chrono Trigger, and Nintendo's very own Legend of Zelda, among many, many others, mostly found on the original PlayStation. Then when the 2000s started, North America started seeing studios from their own home turf join in and provide excellent fantasy games like Elder Scrolls, Warcraft, God of War, among many, many others. In this generation of gaming, some of the best-selling and highest-acclaimed games are of the role-playing genre that usually contains all the elements you usually see in fantasy storytelling, whether it be Breath of the Wild, Horizon, Elden Ring, The Witcher, or Elder Scrolls, because Elder Scrolls pops up in every generation, 
Within the last decade, most of the most beloved adventures in the world of gaming are of the fantasy genre, mixed in with whether role-playing elements, action, or adventure. No fantasy movie can truly compare to playing a game for dozens of hours and formulating your own adventure and building your own storyline. Chrono Trigger could never be made into a film, but Chrono Trigger as a video game is one of the best experiences you could really ever have. Of course, one can argue that how can one medium take away content from another because of its advantages, but my response is look what happened to radio once television became the frontrunner. The radio used to have broadcast of programs, stories, dramas, etc., but once television could visually tell the story, the radio became delegated to music and news primarily. It would take decades and the concept of the podcast before audio storytelling would really make its comeback. Perhaps video games made fantasy filmmaking obsolete. Video games would be the dominant way to tell these grandiose stories of faraway places from faraway times and stuffed with the magic and monsters that doesn't exist in the real world. Just look at The Witcher. It would become an example of how the games have been more successful in adapting the books than the other mediums because of what possibilities gaming can offer. Next up in my theory machine is the fact that Hollywood has become dominated by a few major corporations and the concept of the smaller studio is dying slowly but surely. Sounds like modern day extreme capitalism. Anyway. Fewer production companies leads to fewer studios willing to make these movies and even worse leading to the larger studios not willing to take the risks on fantasy films in favor of easy-to-make blockbusters based off of already established intellectual properties. One thing I haven't yet pointed out from all those great fantasies from the 1980s is that they mostly cost pretty good money and for the most part were very risky endeavors. Making a legitimate fantasy film is difficult, especially those with the Middle Ages vibes. Monty Python and the Holy Grail infamously needed the backing of a couple rock bands in order to actually film and they even came up with the running gag of the clacking coconuts to imitate horses because they didn't actually have enough money to have horses. Back then, the movie studios were relying on the movies to have strong word of mouth and stronger VHS sales to justify the budgets, especially if they couldn't hit box office gold. That formula wasn't always yielding the results studio wanted, and of course, similar to what happened to westerns after the 1960s, what happened to 2D animation after the 2000s, or film noirs after the 1950s, the genre was being avoided by the movie makers starting in the 1990s because they believed its wave of popularity had finally crashed. At the same time, however, we were seeing Warner Brothers, 20th Century Fox, and especially Disney expand its media footprint greatly, eating smaller companies along the way. So with the rise of the media giants consuming everything, fewer gambles were occurring. Instead, we're seeing Hollywood being run by carefully calculating conglomerates. Lord of the Rings was actually a heavy gamble made by New Line Cinema back in the late 1990s. A gamble that Disney infamously neglected, by the way. Disney almost considered making Lord of the Rings, but that's a separate story. But this gamble paid off magnificently. But guess what? New Line would eventually merge with Warner Brothers years later, and as for Lord of the Rings, now it's an Amazon show for its streaming platform. 
one that's probably going to flop miserably too. Compounding on that issue, if the fantasy isn't a familiar IP, then its chances of being made significantly drops or ends up just being a television show where it's, you know, a safer gamble. The Dark Crystal needed to be a cult hit for decades before getting its own Netflix show, but it only lasted one season. The Witcher had to sell 50 million games and 16 million novels before getting its own show. Willow made over 100 million at the box office back in 1988, but did not get its sequel until 30 years later. Of course, you have to be a Harry Potter or a Middle-earth IP to even obtain a budget of 100 million plus. They're at the mercy of the calculation. And just who are the companies behind giving these fantasies new life in the television show format? Netflix and Disney, two giant competing companies who have all but given up making new fantasy films entirely, instead banking on recognizable fantasies of the past to retell those stories in lengthier format. The era of the smaller studios and smaller budgets just isn't anywhere near as prevalent. Gone are the days of a new line cinema investing its entire budget on a film they believe in. A24's immense popularity among cinephiles can be traced to the fact that it's one of the last remaining options for lower-budgeted grandiose ideas like the recent Everything Everywhere All at Once, which by the way, if you have not seen, you absolutely have to. And this all leads to Marvel and how the bosses there altered the way films are planned, produced, and released. If your film doesn't have obvious added potential beyond the box office and streaming service ratings, then its chances of being a produced reality greatly diminishes. The Dark Crystal doesn't happen today. Neither does Willow, Labyrinth, or all those standalone fantasies with higher budgets being greenlit by smaller studios and creative teams wanting to cash in on a risky good idea. Disney believes that if they can't link the natural to five sequels in a TV show, then what's the point? Here's another angle that makes it harder for fantasy flicks to get made or even get approved. Unions. Yep. Unions. If there is something that Disney has historically hated since forever ago, it's unions. Marvel, and especially Disney, infamously battled hard to improve visual effects to the point that they can create anything they want digitally and through post-production without much non-digital staffing. They have even been able to create massive Star Wars landscapes using Unreal Engine, which is software usually used on video games. They have digitally risen actors from the dead, they de-aged living actors 10 to 30 years, and have even used audio technology that recreates the voice mannerisms of an unavailable actor or one who is far beyond their years to craft dialogue, with James Earl Jones' voice being imitated for the recent Obi-Wan Kenobi series. All this is done without dealing with the unions of art directors, makeup artists, puppeteers, set decorators, and all those other essential unionized roles for films that has to be set in a completely different time period and in a completely different environment. This is why Marvel's films have that very familiar look and feel, regardless of which hero is being presented. They probably all use Final Cut Pro if we're being honest. This is a way to cut corners, it's a way to cut costs, and it's a way to speed up filmmaking processes that would usually be impossible under unions and under having full staffs. I love Thor Ragnarok, but to be honest, it's only a few degrees different from Guardians of the Galaxy and Black Panther from a visual standpoint. That clean, glossy, digital look can be seen in all the Marvel movies, even if the directing and cinematography differs depending on director. 
the art style doesn't deviate far from the formula. Take a movie like Iron Man 3 or Captain America Civil War and then compare them to a film like Lord of the Rings Fellowship of the Ring and tell me which one is going to age better decades from now. I promise you, it's the one with a full staff committed to finding real-world locations, committed to the makeup and practical effects, and committed to the tricks, visu the visual film tricks, to visualize the epic adventure. And not the one having way too many visual effects and being overly reliant on them. Hell, even Peter Jackson himself fell into that trap as the Hobbit trilogy appears very, very subpar compared to the Lord of the Rings trilogy from multiple decades ago. Jackson, what happened to you? Hobbit was terrible. Can we, can we admit that now? Those Hobbit movies, that was rough. So this is the, th the theory I'm sticking with. Marvel jump-started this revolution of Hollywood and North American film that has resulted in tentpole blockbusters with recognizable and marketable IPs being the primary and secondary focus among the remaining major filmmaking studios, and in turn, severely limits the opportunities for creative standalone fantasies like your Labyrinth or even an Indiana Jones to exist and flourish. As a reminder, Raiders of the Lost Ark, Indiana Jones' first movie, was never meant to be a 40-week top 10 box office earning behemoth. It was a spectacular film by a spectacular crew that ultimately changed the world. Today, Disney has Star Wars, The Marvel, and now they have Indiana Jones. Warner Brothers has Harry Potter and the DC Expanded Universe. Sony is maximizing its Spider-Man properties, perhaps a little too much, and then whatever the hell they're doing to Ghostbusters. Then there's Universal, who's going to milk Jurassic Park and the Minions until there's nothing left. And then Fox has... Oh, wait. Fox is under Disney. Netflix seems to rely on Ryan Reynolds now. And I don't see him as the kind to want to make Middle-Earth-esque fantasy flicks anytime soon. Even if we don't know Netflix's future films, we kind of already do, don't we? I love my Marvel just about as much as the next person, because Disney has nonetheless, in spite of their flaws, has allowed some good narrative gambles and have been willing to take on topics and themes that other big studios shy away from, including everything we saw in Thor Ragnarok. Seriously, watch Thor Ragnarok again if you didn't catch the themes of colonialism, didn't catch the themes of, you know, the PTSD of what's happened to your homeland, uh, the themes of the hidden sins of the past of your forefathers, and how to carry on your culture when your home is no longer recognizable. As an immigrant, that movie spoke to me loudly. But I'm not sure the rewards of this new Hollywood justifies the creative costs, especially as we're seeing the smaller companies get eaten up. And we're seeing creative minds getting silenced by the executives or not find work because they're in unions that Hollywood doesn't like dealing with. Luckily, even if we don't see our epic sweeping fantasies in cinema anymore, we have the gaming industry to drown us with waves of spectacular fantasy video games. 2022 has given us Elden Ring and Horizon. And next year, we have a brand new Legend of Zelda to explore. Hopefully. Right, Nintendo? We're not going to cancel this again, right? Right? This is why 2022's first few months in cinema has also been such a breath of fresh air, with the indie scene striking back. Everything Everywhere All at Once is a multiverse sci-fi fantasy drama whose main character is a stressed mother that runs a laundromat. It has made over $70 million at the box office because the craving for something new and unique was being met. 
Then there's this Indian action musical that's three hours long that was outgrossing American films on its opening weekend, despite only being in 1,200 theaters and having limited suppressed marketing. As a reminder, RRR is on Netflix. It is spectacular, and I demand that you all see this. All right, we're almost at the finish line, I promise. That type of thirst for something new and refreshing was met by your fantasy flicks of the 1980s, and it can just as easily make a resurgence today. It just won't happen with the help of your mammoth movie studios in existence, unless the Hulk can somehow make a cameo appearance. Thank you for listening, and if you want more of my content or want to financially support, my website is diac1987.com, and I will eventually have a Patreon, which will give you early access and additional content as a reward for your contributions and your support. Enjoy the rest of your week, and I'll be back soon. If I can stop being lazy. Remember to register to vote. Solidarity forever. By the dip. Please be safe. Special shout out to MK Vaff of OC Remix for this awesome background tune. Take care. <laughs>